Take your Bibles as we continue our series through the book of 2 Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 4 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 4. This week it's only 12 verses. I can't promise that that means it'll be a shorter sermon. I'll do my best. Next week, Pastor Jonathan will be speaking for us from 2 Samuel 5. As we continue in the series, my family and I will be on a brief vacation Have you ever considered just how much trouble the little phrase, that's not fair, can be? I'm reminded of this in my interactions with my children. It's often one of the first things that are said, one of the first things we have to address and correct in the thinking. But very often self-justification comes in these words. When something doesn't go our way, we hurry to this conclusion. As if that explains everything and makes what we want all right. When we see someone else getting something we want for ourselves, we rehearse this statement in our minds. And sometimes we have a very good point. Justice is not being done. Yet even at these moments, we're to seek God's wisdom and timing for when to act. We're not to be zealous for our own purposes and desires and glory. And yet if you're anything like me, most often I find in my heart that I conclude something is unfair simply because circumstances are not working out the way that I want Now, we're certainly limited in what we understand of justice and righteousness, aren't we? We're limited by what we know. We're limited by our infinite capacity, or or rather our finite capacity, to see all sides of an issue. We, We don't have the perspective of God. We don't know how things will work out. We're certainly limited in our grasp of the wisdom that knows the best means to the best ends. We have one perspective. We're limited in our understanding of how God uses all circumstances to glorify his own name. We're not sovereign. And yet just as Job concludes about himself, we often speak about what we don't have the capacity to understand. And when God compares his wisdom to Job's, he says, I must be silent before you. God is sovereignly again at work in David's life and in our lives. That's what the passage reminds us of. He will accomplish all his will. This text is really a second part to what we've been seeing in the first four chapters of 2 Samuel, especially chapter 3. Our text teaches us that God sovereignly establishes his king in spite of all opposition and in his time. David knows what God has said to him. But it was said to him more than 20 years ago. The path to the throne is still not free of obstacles. There's still work for God to accomplish. We can see David probably wrestling with that statement. This is not fair. And he has a point to a degree. But his perspective is limited. 
In chapter 3, we saw jo- or Abner rather initiate a peace that would allow David to become king over the northern tribes. But Joab wipes that option off the table with his jealous and vengeful murder of Abner. David could march on the weak, pretend king, Ishbosheth, but that wouldn't help unite the kingdoms. Nor would it dem- demonstrate that God's king is to wait on God's timing. David must continue to wait. On the Lord. He writes, encouraging us in the Psalms, commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. This morning, our text divides cleanly into three main sections as the story of David's rise advances. First, Saul's house diminished. Let's look at our text, verses four, or chapter 4, 1 through 4. Verse 1, it says, When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now, Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of one was Banna, and the name of the other, Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitaim. And have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel when they were killed in the Philistine battle. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Verse 1 begins a new story recounting the response of Ishbosheth and Israel to the death of Abner. We read that his courage failed, or in the original Hebrew, his hands became weak. This would be king had no strength to rule on his own. He wasn't supposed to be on the throne. He was a puppet when Abner stood behind him, but now he's completely lost without him. And all of Israel is affected by the lack of leadership because they now no longer have a competent military leader to defend them. One wise theologian concludes and applies, let us not doubt when we see the enemies of our Lord Jesus Christ in power that it will really take nothing to make them broken people who will not know which way to turn. And why? Because they do not have God on their side. They cannot call on him. We see that to be true of Ishbosheth in these verses. In verse 2, we're introduced to two men who will play a significant part in this short story. We're to notice from all these details listed here in verses 2 and 3 that there are two main things to note. First, they are captains in the army of Ishbosheth. They're meant to protect and defend God's people. They're meant to serve Ishbosheth. Second, they are men from the same tribe as the family of Saul. They're of the tribe of Benjamin. They're, in essence, extended family. They're to be loyal. They're to be loyal to the house of Saul. Now, in verse 4, the narrator seems to insert this almost unnecessary fact about Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. This is Jonathan's son, 
And on the day that his father and grandfather die in the battle, his family, including his nurse, are fleeing for safety from enemy invasion. Their defeat was so severe that they're threatened even at home. And in the urgency and haste of the situation, the little boy of five years old is dropped somehow and severely injured so that he's lame in his feet for the rest of his life. Now, why does the narrator insert here, almost feels like he shoehorns this detail in here. Why does he want us to have this information at this point? Why are these important details to know? Well, the point of this narration at this point is to demonstrate the final remaining heirs to Saul's throne are no longer in the way of David becoming king. Mephibosheth, because of his age, because of his lameness, is not a viable candidate for the throne. The point of these verses is that Saul's line is now almost completely spent. Let's look now at verses 5 through 8. Now the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, Rechab and Banna set out about the heat of the day. They came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat. And they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. The two Benjamite officers in the army of Israel pretend to follow the normal custom of collecting their supplies from their commander. We're supposed to read in these details, this was ordinary. So no alarm no worry would have been raised. This is the normal time of the day for people to take a rest. It's the heat of the day. But these men have a wicked intention in mind. They're not just going to defect to David's camp. That would have been one thing. That's what Abner was doing. But they want to capitalize on the situation for themselves by removing Ishbosheth from David's path to the throne. Because they thought certainly David would be glad for this help, right? Verse 6 tells us that during the heat of the day when they knew their king would be sleeping, they stabbed him through the stomach. Verse 7 repeats some of the details and elaborates further in their treachery and cowardice. Think about how cowardly this is. They kill a defenseless man who's asleep in his own house, on his own bed. Again, these men are supposed to be defending, fighting for him, and the moment an opportunity arises to seek and elevate their fortunes, they wickedly take it. Now, the narrator wants to make this point clear by telling us that they further dishonor Ishbosheth by cutting off his head. In verse 7, he highlights three main actions that they take they strike, they kill, they decapitate. And just think of it. This is what the enemy of God's people, the Philistines, did to Saul. 
They're now taking the actions of the enemy and assassinating an heir to the throne of Israel. The narrator intends us to see this act as astonishingly wicked. These brothers' brutal actions are efficient, as efficient as they were wrong. And yet in this way, Ishbosheth is receiving a bloody judgment for seeking to take the crown in open rebellion to God's revealed will. We have to conclude that this is God's judgment on this man who chose sinfully to rebel against what God had said. Having given himself to a sinful cause, he reaps the consequences of what he has sown. And again, as we see the sins, the gross sins that the Bible isn't afraid to record for us, it's meant to be a siren call to us. Turn from your sin today. Now, what are you tolerating in your life that you can't yet foresee the consequences? Turn from your sin now. These murderers hurriedly sneak away all through the night, covering the 60 or so miles to Hebron, likely in a night and a half. And the story is now moving toward the point of highest tension as we come to the only recorded speeches in the story. First, we'll hear these men justify their actions, and then we'll see David's response. They say to David in verse 8, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. Now, their words are meant to drive us to a question. To consider carefully their conclusion. Has the Lord used these men and their actions to avenge David on Saul? Are they the tool, the means that God would use to clear David's path to rule over a united Israel? Is that what God is doing in this passage? Is he judging Ishbosheth? Surely, surely some of the things that they've said is true. Saul did seek his life. And the point of highest tension is how will David respond to this theological conclusion? They've put the name of the Lord in their mouth. Is this right? Is this true? Let's consider the end, verses 9 through 12. But David answered Rechab and Banna, his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Berethite, as the Lord lives. It's an oath statement. It's a legal pronouncement. Who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous or innocent man in his own house on his bed. Shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. David doesn't agree that this was the work of the Lord on his behalf. He says in response, as the Lord lives, the one who's redeemed my life from every moment of adversity, I don't accept your theological conclusion.
conclusion. You can't fool me with religious sounding words. The narrator shows us a striking contrast between David and these two murderers. David praises and gives credit to the Lord for his providential care in delivering him from Saul over and over for redeeming or sparing his life. Author Dale Ralph Davis writes, they come with blood on their hands, but theology on their lips, expecting that the latter will magically bleach the former. Sin always seems more pleasant when wrapped in religious considerations. For them, theology is not truth that lures us to worship and give credit to God, but a technique that enables us to justify ourselves. Isn't it true, unfortunately, by our own nature, that even God's people are prone to use God and speak of him just to simply get what we want for ourselves? Are we ever guilty of doing that? Just because someone puts God in their mouth is not automatic proof that they're doing his will or that they're even speaking the truth. This teaches us that we're to be discerning about how we hear others when they speak of God. Are they representing him truthfully and accurately? How might we need to grow in our discernment of what is true about our God? But perhaps more significant, we're to be wary of how easy it is to justify sin in our own hearts. Cloaked in robes of theological jargon. Beware of justifying sin in God's name. Consider how you might be tempted to do this. We can think, certainly I should work more and more. More and more hours to provide for my family while I'm actually neglecting them. Or he's gifted me in this way, so it's okay for me to create a little bit of conflict to force others to listen to me or to do my will. Certainly, God wouldn't have given me these gifts if I'm not supposed to use them. Or I have to be faithful to my family or my job. I don't have time then to include my family in the discipleship of others. Or God hasn't given me the ability or personality gifts to share the gospel with my neighbors. Or I can willfully pursue a sinful sexual desire or an illegitimate relationship because certainly God wants me to be happy or because I know he'll forgive me. Where are you most tempted to misrepresent him in order to persuade others to let you do what you think is best? Where are you prone to deceive yourself with religious theological sounding words? What clear word from God are you tempted to set aside in order to accomplish your will, even in his name? How should this passage rebuke us? How should it encourage us to submit and wait on him to act on our behalf? David's response, his words, highlight the main point of the story. David, God's king, believed that God would accomplish his word to him and set him on the throne in his timing. Even when it looked like things were not fair, when things were chaotic around him, he was trusting in God's way. So treason and murder and treachery was not the way that God had designed. And David would not be party to this evil. 
He would not in any way take part in this crime, nor be seen as benefiting from it in any way. Justice had to be done to make that clear. He could not profit personally from this act of murder. And he had to demonstrate that he would rule over God's people as a just king. So David continues, When one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you? David is in essence describing his legal precedent as the king, the judge over the nation. Now, as David is interacting with these men, he knows more of what has happened. He knows somehow that they've snuck into the home. Maybe they said that themselves. But he's rejecting some of their conclusions. As, we, as far as we know, David never refers himself to Saul as his enemy. This was a one-sided rivalry. Remember back in 1 Samuel 24 at the cave, David's men urged him to kill Saul by coming to this same theological kind of conclusion. Do you remember? They say, this is the day of which the Lord has said to you, behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. Again, in chapter 26, David and Abishai come upon Saul at a point where they could have taken his life again. And Abishai says to David, God has given your enemy into your hand under your power this day. Now, please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said then to Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointest? anointed and be guiltless. Do you remember how Saul responds back in 1 Samuel 24 when he realizes that David could have taken his life and refuses? These words are to echo in our ears Saul's conclusion. He calls back to David, if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? Saul's surprised. That's not how he would have acted. This isn't normal. He continues, So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. He was speaking truth he did not fully understand, wasn't he? That God's righteous king would be exalted in God's timing. But consider how severe a test these moments were for David. Author A.W. Pink comments, One stroke of David's sword, and he steps into the throne. Farewell to poverty. Farewell to the life of being a hunted dog. Reproaches, sneers, defeat would cease. Adulations, triumphs, riches, ease would be his but his at the sacrifice of his faith. At the sacrifice of a humbled will, ever waiting on God's time. At the sacrifice of a thousand precious experiences of God's care, God's provision, God's guidance, God's tenderness. No, even a throne at that price is too great. Faith will wait. 
Long before the events of this chapter, Hannah had prayed, the Lord will guard the feet of his faithful one, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. You see, even when it looks like the wicked are prospering, it's not true. God's still on the throne. He's still doing his will. It may be in his time, and it may be in a way that we don't yet understand. David had learned this lesson well. To fully appreciate the godliness of David's response, we need to realize just how much relief Ishbosheth's murder had brought to him. And also how David's rejoicing in this wicked deed would have been then to commit practical idolatry. Idolatry in his heart. Perhaps no other man would have known it. God had promised to make David king. So to appeal to any other source, especially sinful men through sinful actions like these brothers commit, would be to deny God's sufficiency for meeting David's needs. Do you see how demanding your way in your timing denies God's rule in our lives? The murderers were claiming to be David's redeemer, saying, the Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and his offspring. But David refused, saying, the Lord has redeemed my life out of every adversity. I don't need your help, and neither does he. One commentator goes on to explain verses 10 and 11. If these two were after a reward, they should, a reward, they should know that David rewarded with death the one, that Amalekite, who carried the news that Saul was dead. And their cold-blooded murder of Ishbosheth deserved at least the same sentence. David describes Ishbosheth as a righteous man, for in that he was Saul's son. He was not personally involved in his father's guilt and had done nothing to deserve death. By their hand. So David executes these men and displays their bodies in a surprising, gross way for two reasons. He's first demonstrating his own innocence in this matter, publicly executing and dishonoring these men. He's saying, I had no part in this. Secondly, his swift Justice demonstrates the kind of king that he intends to be. He's consistently refused to exercise violence against Saul's house, and he will not tolerate those who do. The contrast of how these bodies are treated in verse 12 emphasize that point again. David displays the bodies of these criminals as means of punishment and warning, and he honors Isboseth and the house of Saul by burying his head in a place of national prominence. Remember, this is, this is like Arlington or Westminster Chapel. In these first four chapters of 2 Samuel, we see the character of David highlighted. Yes, we see that he's a human. We see the first signs of his sinful tendencies that will cause horrible consequences later. But we primarily see a man who is waiting on the Lord with exemplary confidence. Eugene Peterson writes, in these chapters, we see David praying. David waiting for the kingdom to be given to him under the sovereignty of God. David refusing to hurry. David trusting in the efficacy of his anointing to finally set him on the throne. David putting up with irritating and disruptive associates. David fierce in his passion for honor and justice. David tender 
in his laments. He does not lift up a hand to take over Saul's throne. In contrast to all the frenzy of ambition that he sees around him, excited by Saul's empty throne, David conducts funerals and composes poetry, marries and has children, and administers justice. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn text that captures David's dependence on God's deliverance. Well, the hymn states, Through all the changing scenes of life, in trouble and in joy, the praises of my God shall still my heart and tongue employ. Of his deliverance I will boast, till all that are distressed from my example comfort take and lay their griefs to rest. Again, in this passage this morning, we see God clearly at work to accomplish his purposes in establishing his king. We see again how God can allow sinful man to make his own choices without divine manipulation of any kind. And yet in his power and supremacy and rule, he accomplishes all his plans through them. This is human responsibility and divine sovereignty being illustrated perfectly. These men try to dress up murder in religious clothes. They even attempt to credit God for their evil. And yet, as one author writes, all of this, however, is not to deny that there is a sense in which David finally did come to the throne over Israel as a result of God's providential ordering of a series of events that even included the murder of Ishbosheth. God didn't fall asleep when that was happening. The writer continues this must be so. Because God's providential governance of the universe encompasses everything that happens. To recognize David's advancement came through their misdeeds is not to say that God endorsed their behavior. Both things can be true at the same time, even if we have a hard time reconciling them. That's not our responsibility. The faithful Bible teacher of the Reformation, John Calvin, notes that God has a secret method which is incomprehensible to us to bring all his works to completion. In this, he uses the wicked and employs them in whatever way pleases him and not that they are to be excused. There are true, two truths here in this passage that we must hold on to as we consider these challenges to our human understanding and logic. First, God is sovereign over everything that happens in our lives and in our world. Isaiah 45, 7, God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. The wickedness of Rechab And Banna and God's remarkable and mysterious sovereignty accomplished God's purposes, despite the evil of their actions. We see this in Joseph's statement to his brothers. Joseph says, as for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive. We see it again. God's sovereignty working over the actions of Judas who freely chooses to sell Jesus to the religious leaders and yet God accomplishes his will by that man's actions. God predicted he would do them 
And yet he didn't force him to sin. And Peter makes that point so clearly in Acts 2, 22 and 23. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourself know. He's saying, you saw him at work. He concludes, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Can you see the wisdom and supremacy and power and sovereignty of your God in this? Can you see why you can and should trust God in all circumstances, whether they seem fair to you or not? Second, God never tempts men to sin in order to accomplish his sovereign will. James 1, 13 and following explains this to us and then gives us a command. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. It says no one should say, don't say God's tempting me when you sin. It's not his fault. And yet God is able to bring about his plan through the self-willed choices of man for which they will always be responsible. Can you see why David found it safe to trust in God alone? To redeem him out of every adversity? This points us to the truth that God's king entrusts himself to God alone who judges justly. We see David making this choice and yet he's pointing forward at the greater king who accomplishes all justice perfectly for all time. David would not receive the so-called help of murderous traitors. Instead, he desired a path that was accomplished by the Lord who he says lives. In the past, Time after time in David's life, it was the Lord who'd rescued him from every difficult circumstances. And David would again rely on the Lord. Chapters 1 through 4 have recounted the events after the death of Saul we read in chapter 1 verse 1. Now with the death of Ishbosheth, no other viable candidate for the kingship remains for the elders of Israel. David now sits in regal isolation Above the sordid violence of it all, innocent of the deaths of Saul and Jonathan and Abner and now Ishbosheth. And God has cleared his path. God has accomplished his will. And the way is now open for David to finally rise to the throne of a united Israel. God's promises are finally coming to pass. So, how do we respond to this truth? We respond like David states here. He entrusted himself to the God who's sovereign over all the events of his life. David is the kind of king, the kind of believer that God intends for us to be. One who is continually placing his or her confidence in the character and work of God. One who knows God's ways well. Who finds him to be trustworthy and faithful and true. 
And yet David is a signpost to us, pointing us again to God's perfect king. When Jesus was suffering at the hands of his enemies, he too continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And yet he goes further than David. David shows mercy to the house of Saul again and again in these first four chapters. Jesus goes further, showing mercy by giving his very life to his enemies, for his enemies. He accomplished the justice of God by becoming the substitute for their sins. Do you see how God's perfect king, the son of David, brings about perfect justice? David as a human king, as a fallen man, as a man with limited wisdom, could only go so far in executing justice. He wasn't perfect in it. That's clearly seen in the sandwich we have of David executing swift justice on the murders of Ishbosheth and by killing the Amalekite for his sin, but leaving Joab alive when he should have died. David's flawed. But our king is not. Perfect justice and mercy cannot be found in any human ruler. But it's brought together perfectly only by our God through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, that's the only place where perfect justice and perfect mercy meet. God righteously deals with the sins of all mankind. He deals with my sins and yours, with the sins of his enemies, and he does so by punishing his own son. And there we see God's mercy and love demonstrated to sinners. That should humble us to the dust. We're the wicked ones. And yet God shows his mercy to us while we're still sinners. So may we be encouraged to entrust our lives even when they don't make sense, even when our hearts cry out, that's not fair. Even when we know we need to learn what God's justice really is, we're to entrust our lives to him who alone judges justly. Let's pray. Our great God in heaven, we rejoice again in the way that you work through time, in your wisdom, in recording these words for our benefit, for our encouragement to rebuke us and correct us and challenge us. Lord, there are many ways that this passage reveals to us that we're not like David, but that's really not the real point. We're not like our Christ. We fall far short. Like these men, at times we seek to manipulate you and the circumstances around us and others by putting your name and spiritual sounding words in our mouths. Lord, we confess that that is wrong and sin and we're not desirous of your glory but our own. Father, there are many times that we fear and are upset when we see the wickedness of the world and there is a sense where it's right for us to cast our cares on you, but not to fear. Or we're called in this text to trust in a sovereign God who accomplishes all his will. Each of us gathered here this morning 
have all kinds of burdens on our hearts and minds. And we need the encouragement of the scriptures. We need its rebuke. We're called here to stop trusting in our own understanding and to lean on you alone. May you help us to do what you've called us to do. May you win our hearts by again showing us the glories of Jesus Christ who perfectly demonstrates your love for us, mercy toward his enemies, and perfect justice by paying for our sins. It's in his name we pray, amen.